You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world. Plus... Tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. This is the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman. Useless information. So for today's podcast, I thought I'd introduce the story with a short interview that I did the other day with my brother, Gary Silverman. Just coincidentally, I recorded this on the 119th anniversary of today's story. So why don't you tell us about the call that our grandfather uh, made to you about 35 years ago? Well, I was actually a freshman in college, and he called me up, and I was very excited because he told me that he had bought me some real estate. And what can you tell us about this property? Was it a large parcel or a small parcel? Well, on the grand scale, I'd have to say it was extremely small, actually. And what did it overlook? Like, was it a river, you know, beautiful piece of land? What did it overlook? Uh, specifically, it overlooked uh, the Southern State Parkway, I believe. Okay, so why don't you tell everybody what he really gave you? What he actually gave me was a burial plot. So I was 17 years old, and uh, he decided that uh, I should have my very own burial plot. <laughs> and of course, I have one also. And he bought one for all his children, for his children, their spouses, and of course, uh, his uh, grandchildren. Absolutely. You know, it is the one gift that you can truly say that I can truly wait to open this one. Yeah, uh, it's it's not one that I'm looking forward to uh, actually using. So as I remember it, basically he was a member of a lodge, and they had purchased a lot of these plots out in cemeteries on Long Island, and then the next generation didn't join the lodges, so they were left with all these plots, so they were selling them at a song. I guess he decided, since they were so cheap, to buy them for all his family members. Is that kind of how you remember it? That's exactly how I remember it. He uh, basically took advantage of the deep discount rates on burial plots. <laughs> okay, so we're all set uh, when it comes to that. Although I have to say my wife is not too happy that uh, we're not going to be buried next to each other, so we may have to deal with that at some point. Uh, hopefully that's a few years off, though. Yes, indeed. So both our parents are buried there. Of course, our grandfather purchased the plot, right? Absolutely. And I thought I would tell the story of Mom because mom passed away first. And uh, this is actually a pretty funny story. You know, in the Jewish religion, uh, they do an unveiling, which is what, about a year after um, the uh, after the person is buried. Is that correct? Correct. So uh, us not being very religious, we weren't there at the year point to uh, see this. So my father just started bugging us that we needed to go down to Long Island to see mom's grave. Uh, do, you, do you remember this when it happened? 
I do remember quite well. It was a very heavy traffic day, and uh, we made our way down to Long Island amongst the many, many cemeteries. And uh, when we got to the gates of the cemetery... Well, you're actually skipping over a couple of parts, because I left here at like 4 in the morning, because I live up in Albany. That's right. I drove two hours to Dad's house. You were already in the car. I didn't even go into the house. I just jumped into Dad's car, and we drove then three hours to Long Island. So I was on the road five hours straight, and I fell asleep... And I don't know, we're like three or four exits away from the cemetery, and I kind of come out of my daze. And Dad says to me, you know, on the on the passenger side door, there's a little, uh, you know, white pamphlet there. Can you get that out and check the exit? He says, I think it's exit 35. So I pull it out, and I say, yeah, it is exit 35, but Dad, we got a problem. He goes, what? I go, today's Saturday. And he goes, so? And I said, well, it's a Jewish cemetery. And he goes, so? I said, it's probably closed for the Sabbath. Of course, which he said, no way. And what happened when we got there? Well, we got to the gates of the cemetery, and they were locked, and there was no sign of uh, any living human beings. So we basically turned around and went back from where we came. Yeah, we just made a U-turn. He said, okay, we tried, and we just drove away. And did he ever go again? No, I can honestly say we never went again. Yeah, in uh, fact, uh, we didn't see Mom's grave until uh, Dad passed away, which was a few years later. So uh, it's just a very funny story. And, it, you know, very typical of our family, I think. <laughs> yeah, when it comes to funerals, I, I think that uh, we take a very minimalist approach. So the, today's story actually occurs right down the road from the cemetery, and that's why I use it as a lead-in. So I want to thank you for uh, being on the podcast and adding a little humor to it. My pleasure. And I'll let you go, and I'm going to continue with the story. Alrighty, Thank you very much. Talk to you soon. I should mention that these wonderful parcels of land that my grandfather purchased for us are located in the New Montefiore Cemetery in West Babylon, New York. Now, if you head just one exit east on the Southern State Parkway, which is actually a really short distance, you'll pass under a set of railroad tracks. It was on these tracks on June 30th of 1899 that a historic bicycle ride took place. Now, as I tell this story, Keep in mind that this all takes place during the early days of what we consider to be modern biking. To put this in perspective, the chain-driven rear-wheel drive bike that we're so familiar with had just been invented 14 years earlier. That was followed by Dunlop's pneumatic tires three years after that. And, as with any new invention, there was a desire to push the technology to its limits. So just how fast could one go on a bicycle? Well, no one knew for certain, but the best racer of his day, that's Charles Minthon Murphy, Charles M. Murphy, he felt that there really was no limit. You know, with the right combination of gears, tires, riding surface, and so on, one could theoretically go as fast as one wished. The main obstacle, in his opinion, would be air resistance. Air friction would slow you down. While the vast majority of the world's population today uses the metric system, in the 1890s the imperial system of feet, pounds, and gallons was all the rage. So the magic number that Murphy wanted to beat on his bike was 60 miles per hour. You know, 60 miles in 60 minutes. Now if you convert that to the metric system, you get 96.56 kilometers per hour, which simply doesn't roll off the tongue as nicely as one mile in one minute. Murphy's proposal was quite simple. 
Lay down a smooth surface for him to ride upon. Use the fastest vehicle of his day, you know, a steam locomotive to set the pace, and build some sort of windscreen to reduce air friction. Now, most experts of the day believe that riding a bicycle one mile in one minute was nearly impossible, but that wasn't going to stop Charlie Murphy from trying. He spent years trying to convince the various railroads to let him give it a try. It was reported on February 8, 1896, that Murphy was in talks with the Southern Pacific Railway to use a one and a half mile or 2.41 kilometer straight stretch of rail bed near Santa Monica, California, but that was never to be. Honestly, this couldn't have come as much of a surprise to Murphy. Committing to such an endeavor involved great expense to any railroad that chose to do so. You see, not only would they need to provide a straight and level stretch of track, there were a few steam-powered trains of the day that could reach a sustained speed of 60 miles per hour for a full minute. In addition, not only would they have to build a lengthy platform for Murphy to ride his bike upon, it would also mean shutting down a profitable rail line for an extended period of time. And can you imagine the awful publicity that would be generated if he were to be severely injured or die while attempting to set the speed record? You can see why railroads would be hesitant to get involved. While Murphy didn't seem to be able to convince anyone to take him up on his proposal, there was one man who did. His name was Evan E. Anderson. And on August 27, 1896, Fully crediting Charles Murphy with coming up with the idea, Anderson pedaled behind the train as fast as humanly possible, but came up short. He rode the mile in one minute and three seconds. This was quite a feat considering that only two years earlier no one had been able to ride a mile in under two minutes. Now Anderson was closing in on that magical mile in one minute mark but for some reason he never attempted to do so again. And for a while it looked like Murphy's vision would forever be placed on hold. Not only had E.E. E. Anderson been unable to reach his goal, but Murphy had been suspended for life from ever racing professionally again. He had been accused, along with two other racers, of conspiring to throw a bicycle race that was held in August 1895 in St. Louis. Charlie appealed the case, claiming no knowledge of the fix, particularly since he had won the race, but officials at the League of American Wheelmen were not buying it. Luckily, one of the other two riders involved privately made statements that exonerated Murphy, and he was reinstated. In 1887, the Long Island Railroad hired a PR guy named Hal Fullerton, and his job, of course, was to help promote the line. Today, Long Island is one of the most densely populated regions in the United States, but that wasn't the case in the 1890s. Fullerton successfully spent the next 30 years of his career doing whatever he could to promote not only the railroad, but Long Island as a whole. It was through a chance meeting that Charles Murphy met Hal Fullerton in 1899. Fullerton quickly realized that if Murphy could beat the mile-per-minute mark, people all around the world would learn just how great the Long Island Railroad was. The contract was signed in May with the event planned for June. 
it was purposely timed to coincide with a nearby meeting of the League of American Wheelmen. That's the same national biking organization Murphy had been disbarred from. The chosen location for this man-versus-machine race would be the central spur of the Long Island Railroad, which ran between Farmingdale and Babylon. The track is still there today, and it's just a hop, skip, and jump from where my parents are buried. Well, maybe that's a bit of exaggeration. That's because in the 1890s, this area was covered with farmland and pastures. You know, the perfect place for future cemeteries. Yet today, you would probably get killed trying to walk that short distance in a straight line. Of course, one cannot easily ride a bicycle on rail ties, you know, boom, 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 boom. So a smooth wooden pathway was constructed. It consisted of five 10-inch or about 25-centimeter wide boards that were fastened down next to each other and ran a total length of 2 and 3-8 miles. That's about 3.8 kilometers. That allowed both Murphy and the train enough distance to get up to speed, run the full mile at top speed, and then come to a safe stop. An 11-foot or 3.35-meter long wooden hood was constructed on the rear of a passenger car. It not only covered the external observation platform, but it extended out far enough to completely shield Murphy from any air turbulence produced by the train as it traveled. The sides of this box-like structure extended vertically downward before bending inward at a 40-degree angle and terminating just shy of the inner side of the track. Then there was a rubber roller installed under the train to clean the rails as the machine barreled down the track. The goal was to keep as much debris away from Murphy as possible. A big fear was that the train could break down and Murphy would crash right into the back of the train and be killed. So to prevent this from happening, two different safety devices were installed. The first was a rubber buffer, or as the press described it, rubber bands, that were attached all around the observation platform. The second, which is hard to describe in words, was a horizontal bar that extended from the platform and it was designed to hit that bar that holds up the handlebars on your bike. It allowed the front tire to pass right under and stop the bike, you know, hit that bar before the front wheel ever touched the train. And as Charlie rode, a thin white board was installed vertically at the center of the platform. The idea was as long as he kept his front tire and his eyes aligned on that visual marker, he was assured to have his bike centered on the wooden pathway at all times. He would never have to look down at the track. Everything was now in place and Murphy was set to go. On June 21st, he rode a mile in 64.8 seconds, which was actually slower than what E.E. Anderson had done three years prior. Yet somehow the press still declared this to be a world record. I don't know, I don't get it. In fact, all six of his trials were considered to be a failure. He didn't break the mile-a-minute mark. But it's not that Murphy couldn't keep up with the train. That really wasn't the problem. It was the train itself. You see, the locomotive that pulled that one rail car was unable to maintain a speed of 60 miles per hour for the entire length of its run. The railroad had no choice but to bring in a more powerful locomotive. On Friday, June 30th, 1899, 28-year-old Murphy was once again all set to make history. 
Sporting a light blue long sleeve jersey and woolen tights, he climbed aboard his state-of-the-art Tribune bicycle. Nicknamed the Blue Streak, this teal blue bike wasn't anything like what we would consider a sleek racing machine to be. In fact, it was probably simpler you know, than just about any cheap bike you can buy today. Braking was accomplished by jamming the pedals in place and preventing a chain from moving. In other words, no brakes. And changing gears? Forget about it. The only way to change gears on this bike was to take it apart and swap out a different set. Anticipation for the race was building. Thousands of spectators lined up along the length of the track. Murphy's wife Libby waited near the finish line. The New York Times described her as follows, quote, She is a young woman with strong and pleasant face and had her little son with her. She wore a white skirt and waist and a white straw hat with a feather stuck through the band. Then, finally, at 5.10 p.m., engineer Sam Booth opened the throttle and they were off. And it was a near disaster from the start. You know, initially Charlie had no problem keeping up with the train, but very quickly debris, cinders, and hot rubber from that track-clearing rubber roller started to fly up at him. Lacking any sort of protective gear, holes were being burned right through his racing jersey. It had to be painful. Then, the track started to quickly rise up and down. He couldn't figure out what was going on. Quote, Although I was riding perfectly, still on dead air and going strong, I could not understand the violent vibration in the track. As though the boards were wrapping at the bottom of my wheel, the effect being though I was riding over an undulation instead of level track, feeling hot missiles strike my face. What Murphy didn't realize at the time was that the faster locomotive that the railroad had provided was also much heavier. As it rode over a rail, it would depress everything downward. And of course, as soon as it got off that rail, everything would pop right back up. As a result, his wooden roadway simply bounced up and down along with the track. Of course, to ride a mile in one minute, he needed to ride each quarter in less than 15 seconds. If he didn't, he wouldn't break the record. Well, here is his time. First quarter was exactly 15 seconds. The second quarter came in at 29 and 2 fifths seconds. So far, he was doing really well. And suddenly, he began to fall further and further back. At one point, Murphy was an estimated 50 feet or 15 meters behind the train. Shouts from the observation platform could be heard. He's losing the train. He's beaten. Another scream. Come on, Charlie. Never being one to give up, Murphy began pedaling faster and faster and moved closer and closer to the train. Somehow he had gained enough speed to finish the third quarter in 44 seconds. Quote, I pedaled through the fire of hot cinders and rubber, but with each sting it made me more determined. Wobbling to and fro but still gaining, I stayed with the engine that was up to 70 miles per hour at the time. The roar and din was terrifying. I had completely lost my steadiness but continued to labor madly. I kept on gaining, and just as I regained all the lost ground, I saw Mr. Fulton wave the American flag.
At the same time, the signal was given Engineer Booth to shut off the power. Unfortunately, the heavy train slowed down far faster than had been anticipated, and Charlie rode right into the platform at high speed. Now, the front of his bike came to an abrupt stop, you know, it hit that safety bar, but he had so much momentum that the rear of his bike kept going and it just pivoted upward and over his head. That's when Hal Fullerton and another man leaned over and just pulled him up onto the observation platform. A third guy quickly grabbed the bike and saved it from what had been almost certain destruction. Charlie's first statement was, quote, Carry me back to where my wife is. Now, personally, I would have asked something like, Did I do it? And you're probably wondering the same thing. Was official time measured by five different timers aboard the train clocked him as completing the mile in 57.8 seconds. That's an average speed of 62.3 miles per hour. He did it. Charlie had officially gone a mile by human power faster than anyone in history. From that day forward, he would forever be known as Mile a Minute Murphy. A couple of years after he set the mile record, while on break from a vaudeville tour, you know, he's capitalizing on his fame, his nine-year-old son Chester was showing off that historic bike to friends when someone stole it. After a short stint in show business, Murphy opted to join the New York City Police Department. Now we're going to take a short break, and when we return, I'll tell you what happened next. Let's just say that Charlie Murphy didn't sit still for the rest of his life. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome back. We're going to pick up our story just at the point that Charles Murphy had opted to join the New York City Police Department. Now usually, as many of these stories go, Murphy would have enjoyed his 15 minutes of fame and that would have been it. But that is not the case here. Ever the risk taker, Murphy would be in and out of the news for decades. For example, on two different occasions he jumped aboard runaway trains and brought them to a halt. Another time, he was trampled by a runaway horse. Then there was an incident where he was chasing after a thief and accidentally plummeted down a 20-foot or 6-meter embankment. And how can I overlook his decision to make a human chain down a 20-foot well, with him hanging upside down at the end as he grabbed a man who had fallen in and was stuck up to his neck in mud? Yet perhaps my favorite Murphy story made the news in 1906 while he was standing in the middle of an intersection at 10th Avenue and West 33rd Street in New York City. His assignment was to help an estimated 400 students leaving St. Michael's parochial school dodge the oncoming trolleys. I mean, he was a crossing guard. What could go wrong here? Well, you're dealing with Murphy here. All of a sudden, he heard a lot of commotion and he looked up. What he saw was an unbridled horse pulling a cart full of heavy iron ore barreling towards the kids at high speed. 
So he quickly pushed the children out of the way, and he took a flying leap towards the horse. Murphy threw his arms around the horse's neck in an attempt to get it to stop, but it didn't work. As he was dragged along the cobblestone street and down a steep grade, he suddenly made a decision to tightly squeeze the horse's neck and deprive it of air. Believe it or not, that worked. The horse came to a complete stop, it fully recovered, and then Murphy escorted him unharmed back to his owner. And, you know, he just casually walked away and returned to work the next day as if nothing had happened. Charlie made history by both becoming the first uniformed motorcycle officer in New York City and for being the first officer anywhere in the United States to ever pilot an airplane. In addition, he has the honor of being the first officer on duty to ever be in an airplane crash. That occurred during a police exhibition on Brighton Beach on June 27th of 1914. That's when another policeman's motorcycle struck his plane during takeoff. Now there was some damage to both machines, but both officers were unharmed. His motorcycle riding would cause him far more pain than that plane crash ever did. On May 10, 1916, a tow truck tow line became entangled in his motorbike and he was dragged about 100 feet or 30 meters. Just 10 days later, the front fork broke on his bike and he was taken to the hospital suffering from internal injuries. On September 15th of that same year, a sightseeing bus struck his motorcycle while crossing the Manhattan Bridge and he was thrown 30 feet or 10 meters. He badly fractured his leg, and on January 27, 1917, he officially retired from the force. While on his way to turn in his badge, he slipped and fractured his kneecap. Those four accidents put him into five different hospitals in less than a year. Yeah, it was definitely time for Charlie Murphy to retire. In a 1924 interview, he stated that he had been in 189 accidents, of which he believed any one of 40 was serious enough to have killed him. During his bicycle racing years, he set 7 world biking records, 17 US records, 29 New York State records, and in total, he won over 1,800 racing awards and prizes. It should come as no surprise that he was inducted into the United States Bicycling Hall of Fame in 1991. Upon retirement, he relocated to California for a bit, but ultimately he moved back to spend the remainder of his life at his home, which was located at 160-12 Union Turnpike in Flushing, New York. Now don't bother going to trying to find the building. That's because it was ripped down and replaced by an AutoZone store. In 1948, Murphy was diagnosed with hardening of the arteries and his right leg was amputated. On December 23rd of 1949, he would enter Queens General Hospital one last time. He would stay there until his passing on February 16th of 1950 at 79 years of age. Having lost his first wife in 1922, he was survived by his second wife, Catherine Kiesel, and his two adult children, Gladys and Chester. Now that's kind of a downer way to end the story, so I'll leave you with a bit of good news. Remember that bike that had been stolen? 
Well, in 1939, Murphy was notified by Bicycle Trade magazine that a bike shop owner named Joseph Kropsky in Belleville, New Jersey, believed he may be in possession of it. Kropsky claimed that he had obtained the bike eight years after it had been stolen during a trade. Well, after personally examining it, Charlie confirmed that it was his record-setting blue streak, and it was returned to him nearly 38 years after it had been stolen. According to a September 21, 2017 article in the Buffalo News, the bike is now part of a private collection that is housed at the Buffalo Transportation Pierce Arrow Museum there. And I guess the other piece of good news, at least it is for me, probably not for anybody else, is that when I finally pass on, I will forever lie facing an important piece of bike racing history. Now all I need to do is get rid of that ugly highway that separates the two. Useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide. Well, it looks as if poor Ellen stands to lose her faith in Tony, her $10,000, and possibly her life. We'll continue with her story, Close Shave, in Act Two of tonight's Mole Mystery. But first, here's Dan Seymour, who wants to know the story of your closest shave. That's right, friends, because the story of your closest shave, your narrowest escape from peril, embarrassment, or failure, may win the grand prize in Mole's big new contest called My Closest Shave. A $3,500 vacation for yourself and your immediate family, or the cash if you prefer. Well, that's certainly a grand prize, Danny. Yes, Mr. Barnes, and that's only one of the prizes. The next five winners each get a new 1949 Ford sedan. The next ten winners get either an Emerson table model television set installed, or Emerson's new radio phonograph. Also, 25 cash prizes of $100 each, and 50 cash prizes of $50 each. How do you enter the contest, Dan? Get the printed contest rules and suggestions from your druggist. Then write the story of your closest shave in not more than 200 words. The originality of the story is what counts, not the literary quality. And the judge's decision will be final. Send your entry with the two end flaps bearing the name Mole from any Mole carton. Mail it to Mole, Post Office Box 49, New York 8, New York. With your own name and address. Uh-huh. Send your entry to Mole, Box 49, New York 8, New York. Huh? Send as many entries as you wish, friends, including two Mole carton end flaps with each entry. Remember, there are $25,000 worth of wonderful prizes. 107 prizes in all, including trade prizes. Your close shave may be the big winner. So send your Mole contest entry soon. The story of my closest shave is any time that I finish shaving and I'm not bleeding. I have to say I love how they say you can enter as many times as you'd like, provided you include the two end flaps from the Molay packaging with each entry. Yep, just keep buying. That commercial's from the May 14, 1948 episode of the Molay Mystery Theater. The show started on the NBC network on September 7, 1943, and was originally titled simply Mystery Theater. When Molay pulled their sponsorship after five seasons, the show moved over to CBS, and then finally it was on ABC. In fact, it continued in all three networks at different times in different configurations under different names. It was on the air until the early 1950s. As for Molay itself, it was a brushless shaving cream that was fairly thick in consistency. All one had to do was wet their face and rub some mulay in. 
Now, it didn't lather up like most shaving soaps did, but the product did provide a smooth shaving experience. While incredibly difficult to find today, it is still being manufactured in the United States by the Lucky Tiger Company. So here's a question for you. The other day I was painting our downstairs hallway and listening to a classic broadcast of American Top 40 with Casey Kasem. The subject of the most popular song ever on Billboard's Hot 100 chart came up, and I was curious if the answer that they gave back then was still the same today. Well, it turns out that it is. So can you name the most popular song ever on Billboard's chart? Well, here's a hint. The song started a dance craze. I'll hang around for a bit and I'll let you know the answer to the question at the end of this podcast. In other news, here are a few stories that have something to do with the world of transportation. On October 18, 1922, Mrs. Rose Simon, who lived at 354 East 53rd Street in Chicago, was a passenger in the backseat of a yellow cab when she gave birth to a daughter. Both were taken to University Hospital and reported to be in excellent health. Of course, giving birth to a baby in the backseat of a cab has certainly happened before, so you're probably wondering what makes this story unique. Well, it's very simple. Eight years earlier, on October 3rd, 1914, Rose was the passenger in another cab. This time, she's on her way to St. Luke's Hospital, and you know exactly what happened. She went into labor. That time, she gave birth to a healthy baby boy. When Frank Ulrich opened the first successful self-service gasoline station in Los Angeles back in 1947, he probably couldn't imagine the uproar that it would cause. You see, by eliminating the high cost of paying attendance to fill your tank, he was able to pass the savings on to his customers. His slogan was, save five cents, serve yourself. Why pay more? With a gallon of gas costing less than 20 cents in 1947, saving a nickel was a big deal. Word of his success began to spread across the country, and soon others began to copy Ulrich's model. One of these men was Irving Rheingold. He opened a 24-pump self-service station on Route 17 in Hackensack, New Jersey. While everyone else was selling gas at an agreed-upon 21.8 cents per gallon, Rheingold was able to undercut them at 18.9 cents. Soon cars were lining up for this cheaper gas, but the other dealers were very unhappy with the competition. So using the pretext of fire safety, the New Jersey Gasoline Retailers Association convinced the state legislature to ban self-service gasoline stations, and that's a law that's still on the books today. John Dressler, who was the president of the association at the time, stated, quote, The only motive behind the bill was the safety of the public, because from experience we learned that the handling of gasoline is a potential hazard. A July 3, 1948 story in Connecticut's Sunday Herald interviewed Bridgeport gasoline dealers, and all were in agreement that self-service gasoline was probably never going to happen in their state. Larry Keller, who is the proprietor of Pops Gulf Station, said, quote, Our business would suffer from 30 to 60 days, but after that time the novelty would wear off and people would come back for service. James Duva, the owner of Duva's service station, added, quote, 
The whole city would be endangered if every Tom, Dick, and Harry operated the pumps. Red Dial of Dial Sunoco Station said, quote, Customers don't save money anyway with a self-service idea. They save a few cents on the gas and spend dollars on cleaning their clothes, which they dirtied while checking their own oil, or on repairs of the cars which the service attendant could have pointed out and fixed earlier. So I did a quick check on Google Maps for the locations of these three dealers. Today, only one is still a gas station, and, as you probably can guess, it is self-service. Our last story for today made the national news on December 24, 1954. It was reported that two motorcycle officers in Vernon, California, pulled over a car driven by 48-year-old Virgil Grover Atterbury. Atterbury looked very concerned and told officers, quote, Somebody's been tailing me clear from Los Angeles. The officers were attentive as he continued. I want you guys to look into it. The officers didn't have to search far. There was, in fact, a car that had been following Atterbury for miles. What was incredibly unusual about this vehicle was that it was driverless. Apparently, Atterbury had backed into the car, locked bumpers with it, and then towed it along as he made his way. To make matters even worse, the car that he'd been dragging was owned by a policeman named Ray Rapier. The two officers booked Atterbury on suspicion of drunk driving. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So a few minutes ago, I asked you if you're able to name the most popular song ever on Billboard's Hot 100 chart. And the hint I gave was that it started a dance craze. If your answer was the Macarena, you would be incorrect. That song came in at number seven on the list. Here's a sampling of the real answer. That's a twist by Chubby Checker. It hit number one on September 19, 1960 for one week, and then it did it again for two weeks starting on January 13, 1962. Yet few people are aware of the fact that Chubby Checker did not record the original version. That was done in late 1958 by Hank Ballard and the Midnighters. Hank got the idea while watching his bandmates on stage. 
as they moved around, it looked like they were twisting as if they were attempting to put out a cigarette on the floor. Here's a sampling of their version. gotta admit those two versions are very similar and there's a reason for that the story goes that dick clark loved the song so much and he wanted hank ballard to perform it on american bandstand but hank was unavailable so clark asked a local artist that he'd been working with to record the song his name was ernest evans and he was excellent at mimicking the vocals of popular artists of the late 1950s you know elvis ricky nelson and so many more Well, during a recording session two years prior to the recording of the twist, Clark's wife listened on as Evans played piano while doing a Fats Domino impression. She asked him what his name was, to which he replied, My friends call me Chubby. And keeping in with the, you know, the Fats Domino theme, she supposedly replied, as in Checker? Well, that had a nice ring to it, and forever he would be known as Chubby Checker. And because Chubby Checker sounded just like Hank Ballard, he was chosen to record the new version of The Twist. The constant exposure of The Twist on Clark's national program made it a surefire hit. And not only is it the only song to hit number one on the Hot 100 twice without being re-recorded, it had sold over 15 million copies by 1965. Hank Ballard may not have had that big hit that he was hoping for, but I'm sure that he loved those royalty checks when they came in. Well, that brings another episode of the Useless Information Podcast to a close. I know it's very short notice, but if you happen to be in the area of Hudson, New York on July 12, 2018, I'll be telling some of my favorite stories during a talk that I'm scheduled to give there. It's open to the public, free, and it starts at 10.30 a.m. at Columbia Green Community College. Of course, just a reminder to like this show on Facebook, and if you haven't done so already, I'd greatly appreciate it if you could head on over to iTunes and leave some positive comments about the show. Almost all downloads come through iTunes, so that's the best place to leave the positive comments. The Useless Information Podcast is part of the Recorded History Podcast Network, so be sure to go over to recordedhistory.net to learn about all the quality history podcasts that the network has to offer. Anyway, thanks again for listening, and I hope you tune in the next time. Bye. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. 
My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States story. It's unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.